When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this month's series, I'll be detailing cases of psychic detectives, people who were able to help stalled investigations using their psychic abilities to help solve murders. In this episode, a woman whose brother went missing in Louisiana consults a psychic medium in California. Rosemary Kerr, who'd never met the missing man, was able to accurately predict what had happened to him and describe who was involved. The information she provided was so specific that she was the first ever psychic called to testify at a criminal trial. This is chapter two of the series, Psychic Detectives, the murder of Andre Daigle. ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica, la cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Twenty-seven-year-old construction worker Andre Daigle finished his shift on the evening of June 9, 1987, and drove his pickup truck into town to grab dinner with a friend. He'd been hired to work renovating homes in New Orleans, Louisiana, and liked his job, but that day he'd been looking forward to a night off hanging out with a buddy. He met his friend Nick Shelley at a Mexican restaurant. After finishing their meals, they decided to find a place to have a couple of beers and shoot a game of pool. They arrived at a local bar called Mitchell's Lounge around 10 p.m. They played a couple of rounds of pool with the loser buying the beers. Andre lost the first round of pool, and when he went to the bar to order the beer, a young woman sitting at the bar struck up a conversation with him. He chatted with her for a few minutes before returning to his friend. In between several rounds of pool with Nick, Andre and the woman who said her name was Thelma talked and flirted. At some point, Andre introduced Thelma to his friend. Finally, around 11.30, Nick was ready to call it a night. 
Andre tried to persuade him to continue the evening at another bar, but he declined. Nick and Andre headed to the parking lot. Nick heard Thelma ask his friend if he could give her a ride. He agreed and said goodbye to Nick. The last Nick saw of his friend, he was driving away with Thelma. The next day, Andre wasn't at work. He rarely missed a day, so his co-workers became concerned when he didn't show up by the end of the day, nor called to inform them of his absence. When his family learned of this, they tried to reach him, but he didn't answer his phone. They checked on him at his apartment, but found no sign of him or his truck. They called the police to report him missing. They reported that his friend Nick had last seen Andre leaving the bar with a woman he'd just met that evening named Thelma. Nick didn't know her last name or anything else about her. Without much to go on, police told Andre's family not to worry unnecessarily. They said Andre would probably show up soon. They implied he was probably off somewhere having a good time, drinking and partying with the mystery woman, Thelma. But Andre Daigle's family knew that wasn't likely. Even if he had done something completely out of character, like blow off work to spend time with some woman he'd just met, they said Andre would never be gone for days without letting a friend or family member know where he was. They were worried, very worried. Andre's friends and family members gathered to conduct their own search. They plastered shop windows and telephone poles with Andre's photo, printed under the word missing. They distributed the flyers throughout Jefferson Parish, New Orleans, and the surrounding area. Still, no solid leads came in, and there had been no sightings of him after the night of June 9th. Andre's sister, Elise Daigle McGinley, lived in Southern California, 2,000 miles from where her brother was last seen. Just days before he went missing, she had a psychic reading at a friend's urging. She'd done so simply out of curiosity, but now that her brother was missing, she remembered that the reader said she conducted psychic investigations. Desperate for answers about her missing brother, she decided to revisit the psychic. Rosemarie Jovino Kerr was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1935. She had a very vivid dream when she was only four years old. She dreamt that her uncle burned down his house with her aunt and cousin inside. Little Rosemarie was terrified and woke up screaming. She told her parents and her aunt about the dream, but they told her it was just a terrible nightmare and she should forget about it. Two weeks later, in the middle of the night, sirens from fire trucks woke the family. Rosemary's aunt and uncle lived just across the street, and when the little girl looked out of her window, she saw their house engulfed in flames. The terrible dream had become a reality. Rosemary's uncle had locked his family in the bathroom and doused the home with kerosene before setting it on fire. Miraculously, her aunt and cousins were able to escape out of the second floor window and survived. Her uncle was arrested and spent the rest of his life in prison. Rosemary experienced several visions and psychic messages throughout her childhood. Most of these messages she kept to herself. She learned that when she shared them with others, they accused her of making up stories or looked at her like she was crazy. So she kept them a secret. In 1955, Rosemary met Jim Kerr, a firefighter, and fell in love. 
Rosemary laughed about this sometimes, saying that she may have fallen in love with Jim in part for the fact that he made her feel safe because he was a firefighter. She had been terrified of fire ever since her early prediction about her aunt's house being burned down. Rosemary and Jim moved to Southern California and raised five children. She continued to receive intuitive messages, and as a wife and mother in her early 40s, she decided to embrace her gift. Perhaps she felt she could be more open about her abilities because she was so far away from her family. Maybe she felt Californians would be more open to what she termed her spiritual gifts. A significant factor, though, was that Rosemary wanted to help people. She described herself as a clairvoyant, medium, and psychic investigator. Her intuitive abilities allowed her to receive messages from those no longer living, she explained. She also saw images in her mind and even experienced feelings and sensations that provided her with answers to the questions that people asked her. She considered herself to be a psychic investigator. Before long, people started coming to Rosemary's home in Escondido, California, to seek predictions about their relationships and finances, and to receive messages from loved ones who'd passed away. One woman visited Rosemary for a reading with a group of girlfriends. It was all in fun, and the young woman hadn't taken it all that seriously. So Rosemary was surprised when just a few days later, Elise Daigle McGinley contacted her to book a second reading. This time she said the matter was urgent. Elise told Rosemary that her brother Andre was missing. She asked for Rosemary's help. The family was desperate to find answers and very worried about his safety, she said. Rosemary told Elise that she would try to help her locate her brother. She instructed her to bring a photo of Andre and a map of the area where he was last seen. When Elise arrived, she sat at a table across from Rosemary. She handed her a photo of her brother. Rosemary didn't look at it, but placed it face down in front of her. She ran her fingers over it for a minute or two. With her eyes closed, she began to speak. She told Elise she felt severe pain in her head. It felt like she was being hit over the head repeatedly with a heavy object. Rosemary said she heard a voice saying, My head is killing me. Then she described what she was seeing. Rosemary saw a dark blue truck with a large scratch on one side. Elise knew that Rosemary was describing her brother's truck. She became excited now, wondering if this woman could really help find Andre. The psychic next described the man she saw driving the truck. His description matched Andre's. Then she said there was a woman sitting in the passenger seat. She had long blonde hair. This woman has some kind of power over your brother, Rosemary said. Elise was surprised because as far as she knew, Andre didn't have a girlfriend and hadn't mentioned dating anyone recently. Rosemary next placed her hands over the map. Again, she felt severe pain in her head. An image of a low bridge over water appeared to her. She called the body of water she was seeing a swamp. Rosemary had never been to New Orleans or even the state of Louisiana and wasn't familiar with swamps, but said that's what appeared in her mind's eye. She also saw a small beach. She ran her fingers along the map. And when they reached a town about 30 miles from New Orleans called Slidell, she felt an electric current run up her fingers. There, Rosemary said as she pointed to the town on the map, you should search here for your brother. She told Elise that they must go now if they wanted to find him. Do it quick, she warned. Elise was convinced that Rosemary Kerr was truly psychic. She'd been able to detail things about her brother she couldn't possibly know. Elise shared what she'd learned with her parents and siblings. 
They all agreed it was worth a shot to search where Rosemary had directed them. When she arrived in New Orleans with her husband, Elise met up with her brother Chris. Chris drove his car and the McGinleys followed him, figuring they could cover more ground once they arrived in Slidell. Others had come to help in the search and rode with Chris. Nick Shelley, the last person who had been with Andre before he disappeared, drove with Chris to Slidell, as did Andre's other brother Joey and a woman named Virginia. I'm not sure of her relationship to Andre or Chris. The two cars headed down the interstate and were just outside of town, driving along the five-mile bridge to Slidell, when they saw Andre's truck pass them going the other way. They recognized it immediately by the distinctive scratch on its side panel. They made a quick U-turn on the highway and started following the truck. Chris pulled alongside it and looked inside. There were two men, neither of whom he recognized. He didn't see his brother. So I fall back and I yell to my sister in the other car, Chris would later explain. He told Elise to get off the freeway and call their mom. Tell her to call the police, city, state, everyone. Tell them we're going east on the I-10, Chris instructed her. At that point, it appeared to him that the men in the truck knew they were being followed. They tried to lose him by pretending to take an exit off the freeway, but then would swing back onto the interstate at the last minute. Chris wouldn't be shaken off their tail, however, and continued to follow at a high rate of speed. The truck finally exited the freeway, with Chris close behind. They were now on another, less-traveled highway. It was dark, and they were heading further into the backwoods. Chris had told his sister to send police to the interstate, and now he was on a side road. But there was nothing else he could do but to continue following them. If he lost them, Chris knew, he may never have another chance to find out what had happened to his brother. He continued tailing the truck, but noticed that up ahead the road was a dead end. He stayed a safe distance behind it to see what the driver would do next. As the driver reached the end of the road, he turned the truck around and stopped, shutting off the headlights. Just about 50 yards from the dead end, Chris saw a bar room. He stopped in front and told Nick to run in, call the police, and give them their location. As he watched to see what the driver of the truck would do next, it started up again and headed slowly in Chris's direction. Chris described what happened next. Quote, I told Virginia to lie down on the floorboards. Joey, who has a thirty-eight with him, and I open the doors and crouch behind them, using them as shields. When the truck gets up alongside us and they see us crouching like that, I don't know what they thought, maybe that we're cops or something, but they take off hauling ass. We take off after them, and by some miracle, on the deserted road we had just driven down, maybe five minutes before, there's now a police car parked. We start yelling, all of us at once, but the cop can't follow what we're trying to say. So Virginia shows him the flyer with Andre's picture, and the cop gives chase after the truck. We followed behind, all of us going around 100 miles an hour, end quote. The officer caught up with the truck, and after a short chase, pulled it over. The two men in Andre's truck were identified as Michael Phillips and Charles Gervais. They both had criminal records for burglary. They were arrested for automobile theft and booked into jail. But there were still questions to be answered. Most importantly, where was Andre Daigle? But also, who was the blonde woman he was last seen with? And was she involved in his disappearance? Those questions would soon be answered.
Thank you for listening. One other way you can support the show is by becoming a Patreon member. For as little as $2 per month, you can get all new episodes of Once Upon a Crime ad-free and hear them before anyone else. Patrons are OUAC superfans, and we show our appreciation for your support by giving you bonus episodes you can't hear anywhere else, as well as exclusive OUAC merchandise sent to you as a thank you. To find out more and join, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. There's also a link on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. Thank you so much. When small-time crooks Charles Gervais and Michael Phillips were arrested after being found driving Andre Daigle's truck, they were questioned about the location of the missing man. It didn't take long before they spilled the entire terrible story. Phillips and Gervais were roommates. They confessed to the police that they had killed Andre Daigle. Their motive? They wanted to prove that they, quote, had the nerve to kill someone. That was the whole stupid reason. One night, sitting around in their apartment, they began challenging each other whether or not they were capable of murder. They both boasted that they could, and said they would prove it. They decided to put their harebrained theory into action. So where does Thelma fit into the story? Thelma was Thelma Horn, Michael Phillips' girlfriend. Thelma was also part of the could-you-murder discussion. She agreed to be part of the plot, and she was sent out on the night of June 9th to find someone to lure back to their apartment. Thelma went to Mitchell's lounge alone and waited. When Andre Daigle walked into the bar, she picked him at random. He just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. After Thelma asked Andre for a ride home, she invited him up. Once inside the apartment, he was immediately attacked by Phillips and Gervais. They beat him over the head multiple times with a claw hammer. He was still alive, so they took a cord from a lamp and attempted to strangle him with it, but the cord broke. Andre was still breathing. They next cut the cord off a vacuum cleaner and wrapped it around his neck, twisting it until he was dead. The sun was starting to come up, and they needed to get rid of the body without being observed by neighbors, so they came up with the next part of their plan. They pulled a curtain off a window and wrapped the body inside of it. They turned their cheap sofa upside down and pulled the bottom fabric from the frame. The body was placed inside of it, and wooden slats were nailed over the bottom of the sofa so it wouldn't roll out. They turned the sofa upright and pushed it against the wall. They turned the air conditioner up high to keep the body from decomposing too quickly. The following evening, they loaded the sofa into the back of Andre Daigle's truck and drove it to a swamp just off the highway, where they dumped their victim's remains. Phillips and Gervais were being evicted from their apartment for non-payment of rent. After disposing of the body, they stopped at a pawn shop and pawned some of Andre's tools and other items found in the truck. They took the cash to the apartment manager and asked if they could have another day or two before moving out. Phillips, Gervais, and Thelma Horn moved out of the apartment the following day. Two days later, the men were spotted in Andre's truck and arrested. After their detailed confession, Andre Daigle's body was found and retrieved from a swamp just off the highway. An autopsy revealed Daigle's cause of death, as multiple head injuries caused by at least 10 blows with a claw hammer and strangulation. When Phillips and Gervais were arrested, 
A vacuum cleaner with a missing cord was found in the stolen truck. A lamp, also with the missing cord, was found among their possessions. Records from the pawn shop where Phillips had pawned Andre's truck bed toolbox and tools also became evidence. Charles Gervais and Michael Phillips were charged with first-degree murder. Thelma Horn was arrested and also charged with first-degree murder. Gervais and Phillips pled guilty and were sentenced to life in prison without the benefit of pardon, probation, or parole. Thelma Horn pled not guilty and went to trial. She maintained that she'd had nothing to do with the murder, but the prosecutor reminded the jury that it was Thelma who'd chosen Andre Daigle as the victim, and she was the one who lured him to the apartment. Without Horn's aiding and abetting the murder, the prosecutor contended, Andre Daigle would still be alive. The jury agreed, but returned a verdict of second-degree murder for Thelma Horn. She was given a mandatory sentence of life imprisonment at hard labor without the benefit of parole, probation, or suspension of sentence. Psychic Rosemary Kerr's predictions about the fate of Andre Daigle were eerily accurate, so much so that she was called to testify at the murder trial, the first time on record a psychic was called as an expert witness at a murder trial. The feeling she described about receiving painful blows to the head was precisely the way Daigle was killed, by multiple hammer blows to the head. Her prediction that a blonde woman played a part in his fate and who, quote, had some power over him, correctly described Thelma Horn as the woman who lured him to his death. Rosemary even accurately identified the area where Daigle would be found. She envisioned the swamp, the bridge over low water, a strip of sandy beach, and the number seven. The area where the body was discovered was near exit number seven off the interstate. When she'd shared her predictions with Andre's sister, Rosemary didn't reveal her belief that he was dead. She knew he was no longer living, she later admitted, but felt it best not to share that detail with the family at that time. She'd been asked to provide information about how his family could find him, so that is what she shared. Rosemary didn't want to leave Andre's family without hope, since they still needed to do the work of locating his body. The detail Rosemary provided about searching near the town of Slidell was crucial to resolving Andre's disappearance. It was upon following the psychic's directions of where to go that they encountered his distinctive truck, which led to the arrest of his murderers. You may believe in psychic predictions, or you may not. That's up to you to decide. But it's hard to argue that some supernatural force didn't at least have a hand in the unbelievable series of events that solved this mystery. Rosemary Kerr became highly sought out as a psychic investigator. She spent the rest of her career assisting law enforcement agencies nationwide and even internationally to help close cases. She was featured in newspaper articles, television shows, and books. Rosemary appeared in several episodes of the Discovery Channel series Psychic Witness. She later explained that she believed her mission was to help others develop their psychic abilities to use them to assist those in need. She believed that everyone is born with these gifts, and quote, it's up to each individual to develop them through the mind and body. Call it intuition or whatever you like, Rosemary wrote. It's all about listening to that little voice inside. Rosemary Kerr died at the age of 80 in 2015. 
That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. To watch the videos that accompany our episodes, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Photos and video clips help you dive into each case even further. Search for Once Upon a Crime podcast on YouTube or click on the link in our show notes. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Thank you so much. Once Upon a Crime is researched, written, and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another.